I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Frank Forensic, author of Activism is Medicine, Health and Relevance for the Human Animal. A former columnist for Paleo Magazine, he is the author of numerous books delving into health and the human predicament. As a diplomat member of the American Institute of Stress, he brings a wealth of knowledge and insight to the conversation about stress, health, and our collective well-being. He emphasizes the transformative power of activism as a remedy for building resilience, purpose, and overall health. And he seeks to redefine activism not as a burden, but as a gift that individuals can embrace for personal growth and positive societal change. Welcome to the show, Frank. Nice to have you on. Great to be on with you. Well, your book, Activism is Medicine, um, does present a unique perspective, um, I guess, by framing activism as a form of medicine. What are we talking about? What does that mean? Right. Well, I think the common perception of activism is that it's something stressful, something highly inconvenient, something something that most people would try to avoid. And if pressed, we might say that activism might actually be detrimental to our health. But I I turn that around and say, no, on the contrary, activism is something that's going to be beneficial to us. Of course, it's stressful. But if we are acting on our sense of meaning and purpose, then it's something that can magnify our health and support our our efforts to um, to engage with the world. So how is it, it going? I'm going to stop win. you there because how does it? How is it going to magnify our health? We have the perception: no, it's just the opposite. It's burdensome. It's stressful. I don't want to do that. Is this my individual responsibility to be active and make changes? You know that I think goes through a lot of people's. I got other stuff to do, <laughs> and I don't want to do it. So uh, yeah, so. Right. Well, well, in a a sense, this is an old idea, and different cultures have touched on this. So, for example, in Japan, they have a word, ikigai. Ikigai simply means having a sense of meaning and purpose. And physicians around the world have discovered that there is a relationship between having a sense of meaning and purpose, acting on that, and then having better health outcomes. And it's also something that was observed by Viktor Frankl uh, in World War II in his prisoner of war experience, where he saw that various um, prisoners who did better, those were the prisoners who had a sense of meaning and a purpose. So we don't know exactly how this works, but we do know that it does work. So we know it works. Can we get like very specific about how it works, why it works, and what we're talking about when we're talking about activism, activism, let's define that in the context of what we should be doing here, I guess, culturally here in the United States. What are we, to, yeah, specifically. Right. Well, I take a pretty broad view of what activism is because it's got to be different for everyone depending on your circumstances. And it could be something as as dramatic as protesting on the streets, but it could be more subtle than that. So a lot of different ways. And I I like to keep the definition broad because I want to be as inclusive as possible with that. But the, the way it works is that it helps the human animal have a, um, 
sense of control and predictability in the world. Because if you're acting in the world, you're having an effect and you, uh, the body enjoys that. Otherwise, you just feel like a victim and things are happening and the body doesn't work as well. In other words, we feel out of control. As you say, we feel like we're victims. And, and the minute you feel right. that you're, you're doing something, you have a sense of control. And, and that's good right. for your body. Good for your brain uh, overall, yes. right? Yes. So, yes. yeah. So you, you sort of turn the conversation around, I guess, um, right. in your book. And especially, uh, especially in a modern context, because so much so many of us are completely intimidated right now by the magnitude of our ecological crisis, our social crisis, and these things just seem overwhelming. And it's hard to find any good news. But I think by focusing on activism and what it does for our lives and our bodies, it, it ends up being actually kind of a positive vision, and a positive way to live. So that's what I'm looking for and trying to encourage people to get more involved. Well, when we talk about getting involved, your book does touch on the issue of, or the urgency of, I should say, climate change. So can we view this, you know, take what we're talking about in the context of climate change? There's an urgency to it. We need to, we as individuals need to do something about it. How does that fit into, yeah, activism? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is without question the alpha problem, the alpha challenge of our age, everything else is secondary to that, because if the biosphere fails, everything else fails. And so all of our actions need to be directed toward that end to somehow stopping the destruction of the biosphere of our life support system. That's the starting point. And of course, there's a million ways to do that, but to be relevant is, is the key here to use whatever power and resources we have toward that end of stopping the damage to the biosphere. Well, as you're, you're stating the problem, but I, I think in my experience, when people, many people um, don't want to become, are afraid to become active, are overwhelmed by the thought of we are ruining the biosphere and everything is in such crisis and what do we do? And they get so sort of... Um, it's too frightening. It's too overwhelming, and they shy away. Too, and something too overblown. So they back off. They don't want to do anything. It's too much. Let somebody else do it. Let the scientists uh, attend to it. I really can't do anything because it's it's just it's too much. Right. That's a common reaction, and it's even common among activists themselves because defeats are common. And it's, it's very challenging to stay engaged. And of course, there are times when people need to retreat and take care of themselves individually. Nevertheless, the, the idea of living a relevant life is so important that we have to stay with it. And maybe that means getting involved and then stepping back for a while and then getting involved again to kind of oscillate our engagement with the world. Nevertheless, it's relevance is key to everything. Uh, I, I think one of the things is and that I have difficulty with, and I think that the media is very is responsible for this. We talk about the problem, we get people frightened. I think because 
it, it scares them. We're talking about climate change in this case. And, and not really break things down into small pieces of like, what does that mean in terms of your own life, your own lifestyle? You know, we're talking... In this case, we're talking about health and 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 well-being and air and water and flooding and just ver- and travel and all the stuff that this climate change uh, has impacts individuals' lives and communities. And we don't do that. And I wouldn't just and it doesn't just involve climate change. I think just any of the things that we're talking about in terms of being active, it's helpful if people can sort of I think hone in on specific parts of the problem and see how it affects their everyday life. Right. And there is a consensus among activists about how to approach this. So, for example, everyone needs to reduce their consumption of fossil fuels. That's that's a slam dunk. We have to do that. We need to reduce our meat consumption as individuals. But then going beyond that, being politically active and going after the perpetrators, which are for certain fossil fuel companies, and taking action to stop and reduce new fossil fuel development. That's that's something that we can do on a larger scale. Okay. So that's one example in terms of climate change. I know that there are many organizations um, – are have are innovative organizations. I would have said. I would say um, have made positive impacts in transforming activism from a burden to a source of, as we've been talking about, personal and collective strength. What are those innovative organizations, and what have they done? Oh boy, that's that's a tricky one because organizations, when they get large things tend to change. And from my perspective, the large environmental organizations, I think, are kind of missing the point. And what we're seeing now are smaller, more active, more radical organizations. For example, Climate Defiance is doing some great work actually interrupting the flow of power, particularly in Washington. So there are groups that are doing this. What I see, what I would like to see is more leadership out of the health and wellness community, which by and large is focused on individuals, individual wellness, individual well-being. And that's all fine, but we need to work at the level of systems and context. And without that, then a lot of our efforts are misplaced. So that's that's why activism is so important is work on the level of systems. So how do we work on the level of systems? But you know, give us that give us a, a scenario. Right. Well, we have to be politically active and we have to continually put our emphasis on the the overall predicament that people find themselves in. So for example, there's a lot of emphasis in schools and the workplace on adaptation and helping individuals through meditation and mindfulness. And that's all fine and good unless it's the setting and the systems that is overwhelming that. So, for example, if people aren't being paid enough or they're having to work too too many hours at work, that's the problem. 
um, if students in school are overwhelmed by the nature of, say, their workload or the chaos in the classroom, whatever it is, that's the problem. It's not a deficit of mindfulness and meditation. It's the system itself that needs to change. So how, how do we encourage young people to uh, listen to uh, what you're saying and what you're writing about in your book, because I think it does begin there. As you say, you mentioned the school system, mindfulness, meditation, individual stuff, but how do we get them hooked up and connected to this working on the systems to change the systems for health and resilience and wellness? Right. Well, I think we need what you might call an activist curriculum. We, we need to be very explicit in teaching young people how to make systemic change. What are the rules? What are the methods? What are the, uh, the pathways to creating change? And we, in general, don't do this. You can go all the way through to a PhD and not get any, any real training in activism. And I see that as a real deficit in our school system and in our culture at large. We, we still consider activists to be outliers and that's, that's got to change. We need to normalize the activist approach. Yeah, activism as far activists as outliers, that's true. I, I think there's still sort of that kind of uh, attitude toward activists that they're people who are going to do bad things, not good things. They're active, or right. they're hippies or the whatever they want to define them as, and that they're not doing good works, but they're doing exactly the opposite. So yes, the definition has to be changed. Or, yeah, and, and I think that's a real problem. Right. And we need, I, this is, this would be great work is to develop an activist curriculum for young people. Say, so here's, you want to change the world. There is a method, there is a pathway, there is a way to do that, and teach children, for example, about the power of language, the power of story, what kind of messaging works best, what are the existing rules, how, how do we change rules, that kind of thing. It would be fantastic work, but we have to, we have to do it. We have to be explicit about it. Well, we're already having problems, though. I think this next generation, Gen Xs and Millennials, have difficulty with language and stories and narrations. The communication, I think, uh, is one of the problems. The way, uh, not all, obviously, but the way uh, this group uh, communicates with one another, communicates with the outside world, they they have not really... Uh, particularly good communication skills because of the internet, because of the way they connect, and and not necessarily with each other in real time. Right, and that uh, I'm a real, you might say a lot in a lot of this because I'm I favor the the basic human animal, and we need to get back to conversation, individual people talking to individual people. Um, in real time, face-to-face, that is a skill that is beginning to atrophy. And that in itself is a real danger. And I could see us having that being part of an activist curriculum, learning how to tell a story, learning how to have a conversation, a rhythmic conversation with another person. These are vital skills that we need to keep alive. Yeah, and it seems when we are talking to other people, we are always, we're attacking each other. It's uh, becomes (laughs) I'm right and you're wrong kind of conversation. And I don't think that's helpful for changing uh, systems. Uh, It's uh, but that that 
sometime is the tenor of the conversation. I want to, you know, in the beginning, I think I mentioned that you're a diplomat member of the American Institute of Stress. Can you tell us about that and the work that you do there? Right. Well, the the basic premise is that modern people are living in an alien environment. This is this is not the environment that we evolved in. And so we've got this fundamental mismatch between our bodies and the modern world. And that mismatch is causing us an immense stress burden. And a lot of the problems we see with polarization and mental health and physical health are a consequence of that radical stress burden that we're living under. And again, we we tend to put the focus on individuals. We say, okay, here's how you can manage your stress rather than putting the focus on the system. And that's what I try and do in my work around stress. I say, look, we've got to focus on the container, the predicament, the context that we're living in. And by doing that, you can reduce your stress and live a more relevant life. So stress is, I think, the key to a lot of this. What kind of pushback are you getting at the, well, you're at the uh, Institute? I mean, well, they, they enjoy the work. I mean, it's, um, it's very useful for just about everyone now. I mean, we talk a lot about PTSD. We talk a lot about trauma. We talk a lot about the severe cases of stress. But this is obviously a problem for everyone. So this is, uh, <laughs> you, you might call it a growth industry now because stress is everywhere. And uh, we, we need to take it even more seriously than we are. Uh, well, it's a big, uh, <laughs> I guess it's it's a huge, um, big job, I guess, that we have to do. But we, it seems to me, it's you know, you read the news every day. And to me, it seems as if there are just more and more things you say in this, we're not made to live in this kind of modern era. It's, it attacks our bodies, et cetera. It's not good for us. But it seems to be getting worse and worse. I mean, the, when I you read the headlines, and this is not just here in the United States, obviously, global wars, fighting. Um, how are we supposed to react to those kinds of things? Right. And it, oh, one of the common prescriptions is to simply turn it off and to go on a news fast or to focus on the positive and all of that advice I think is good in the short term. It can be useful. Although if you go too far with that, then you lose your sense of relevance because you, we have to stay engaged. So I look for a rhythmic oscillation there of paying attention to the trauma in the world and then stepping back, take care of yourself, then re-engage. And if we can live a oscillation, a rhythm of that engagement, then we can do better. But yes, absolutely, we have to acknowledge right up front that this is tremendously challenging for everyone. Just to simply pay attention is a big ask right now, but we have to do it. Well, what's the impact of having a 24-hour news service uh, so that you can, (laughs) (laughs) all right, as opposed to, you know, uh, looking at uh, reading your newspaper every day. I mean, that's old stuff, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's a constant barrage. It's, you you hear it over and over 24, as I say, 24 hours. Yeah. And it's not just it's not just twenty four twenty four seven news, but twenty four 
24-7 everything now, especially the disruption of our circadian rhythms with uh, artificial light. And what we've done is fundamentally alter one of the most basic rhythms of life on this planet by leaving the lights on all the time. That's a that's a huge stressor for the human animal. And that in itself is something that we need to take seriously. And we're not. We leave the lights on all the time, destroying insect populations everywhere, but fundamentally rejiggering human physiology and stressing out everyone. So light is a problem. 24-7 news is a problem. And yes, we have to, we have to step away periodically. So what should we do about that light situation? I, I just read that uh, <laughs> I'm one of those people who gets up in the middle of the night, maybe for a couple hours, does stuff and goes back to sleep. And so I was kind of researching that kind of sleep behavior. And apparently, I'm sure you're aware of this, it, it all started with Thomas Edison when, when he invented the electric light. Before we had lights, people used to, their, as you describe it, circadian rhythms um, were attuned to um, uh, just attuned to the environment. For instance, you go to sleep right. when the sun goes down and then and wake up five hours later. People used to wake up and either go, they would work or do stuff and then go back to sleep and then wake up when the sun came up. So we weren't meant to really sleep eight, ten or, you know, eight hours in in, in one sitting or uh, at right. night. Right, and, and yeah. it's a problem of definitions now because when people wake up in the middle of the night, we say that they have a sleep disorder. But yeah. that is not the case. This segmented sleeping style is historically normal for the human animal, and we've done it for thousands of years. So artificial light is the culprit here. And obviously, we can't turn off all the lights, but we can turn off some of them. And that's something that people need to be more proactive about, is turning off any non-essential light um, during the night times. But we're not doing that, obviously. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> uh, it's really, uh, you know, and just in terms of trying to change people's attitudes and changing their very behavior, a very difficult task. Are we working against the science um, while we're, you know, or, 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 and I'm putting this in parentheses, pro what's considered progress? Um, how do you get people to listen to what you're saying? Well, you have a book, obviously, that's one way. Uh, but what are some of the other ways? Right, well, for me... One of the most important things is perspective, and especially looking at human history. This is incredibly powerful, because if you look at our history as animals on this planet, the vast majority of that experience has been living in wild, outdoor, natural environments, living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And that's only changed very recently. And once you gain an appreciation of that history, you start to look at yourself in a different way. You start to identify with yourself as an animal. And that's incredibly powerful because now you, you say, okay, I'm an animal. I have certain needs. My animal body has certain needs. The modern world is often contrary to those needs. So, you know, in a sense, 
I can step outside the modern world and I can take care of myself, take care of my own animal body and recognize the modern world for what it is and the challenges that it presents to us. So yeah, Gabriel Mate has taught, he, he's a famous uh, physician, talks a lot about trauma. He talks about the myth of normal. And that's simply the idea that the modern world is somehow healthy just because it's familiar to us, but it's not. And this, this familiarity with the modern world leads to kind of amnesia. We forget about who we are, and that's why learning history is so important. Yeah, I don't think we forget about who we are. I think most of us have never learned it in the first place. I think that <laughs> right, right, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is too bad. I mean, Americans, I think, have a terrible sense of history. Um, this is not something that we even focus on in our school system. That's a whole other topic, I guess. But anyway, we only have a couple minutes left. Um, great conversation. The, the title. Um, of your book, Activism is Medicine, Health and Relevance for the Human Animal. And I've been talking to the author, Frank Berensich. Could you give us a website and or websites to go to for more information about the book, about your work, about what you're doing? Right. There, well, there's a couple of websites. My main website is exuberantanimal.com. And, or you could just look up the book on Google. It's easy to find. Or you can also go to activismismedicine.net, and that's the, that's the program that we run um, under that name. So easy to find. Look up my name. Look up the title of the book. It's all over the place. Great. Great having you on the show today. Lots of good information. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, well, it was a real pleasure talking to you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 